good evening. We're going to be at 1 Samuel uh, 4 through 6 tonight. Orson Welles said one time, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop the story. I like that quote. Um, depends on where you stop your story. No matter what struggles or setbacks you face, walking by faith means your story ends with God. Uh, it means one day you will get to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, story stops with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 says, Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're headed for victory in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, our hope for a happy ending doesn't rest in our talents or strategies or resources or in any person or in anything save Jesus, the one who saved us from sin and death. I say all of that because tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel, chapters 4 through 6. And what we're going to see tonight is a series of smaller stories, really without happy endings all the way through. The good news is our story doesn't stop here. Uh, Chapter 4 opens up with a battle scene. I like battles. Uh, Israelites have deployed their forces to face Uh, a nation that will over time become their great nemesis, Philistia, and they are encamped at Ebenezer, a settlement on a ridgeline leading down to the the coastal plain uh, by the Mediterranean Sea. The Philistines are just a few miles west at a town called Aphek, and we don't get a lot of details about the battle. We just kind of get the end story didn't go well. <laughs> Israel was defeated. 4,000 Israelite soldiers were killed on the battlefield. The most important thing about this particular battle is the response of Israel's leadership. You know, what are we going to do? We lost a battle to the Philistines, so we'll pick it up. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, if you have been, <laughs> if you've been tracking with this on Sunday nights, uh, your reaction when you hear those names introduced there at the end should be, uh-oh, this is not good, because the text has just named uh, the axis of evil, so to speak, in this part of 1 Samuel. Eli, the corrupt high priest, and his two degenerate sons, named here Hophni and Phinehas. The aging Eli is de facto judge. 
we have not yet entered the time of the kings. And so he as high priest is essentially uh, the leader, the most influential leader of Israel, uh, if you could call what he does leadership. Samuel is, is still ascending, but Eli is currently the high priest. And so let's not get distracted by the access of evil here. The text gives us a very important detail. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now that is a statement from the elders of Israel, the leaders of the country, and it is a statement that should get our attention, the way that's worded. Um, trust is being placed in a relic, okay? Trust is being placed in an object. It's not really being tr- placed in God. They say that it, the ark, that it may come among us and give us the victory. Now, okay, if any ark, if, or rather if any relic is holy, if any object is sacred, this would be it, the Ark of the Covenant of God. The thinking is if we can just get this gold-plated box, this relic, into the middle of our next confrontation, they're still lined up against the Philistines, then it will bring us the happy ending we are looking for. (coughs) Now, when your relationship with God is weak, and you know it, I think, and I'm not going to flesh this out much tonight, but I do think there's a tendency to grab on something close to God, something godly, something religious feeling, and and kind of bring that in. You grab onto a symbol and and hope that somehow that will connect you to the one behind the symbol, to to God. Uh, Maybe that will deliver. And so this group, they're sent to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and they come back with the ark. And as this holy object comes in to the Israelite encampment, it's very exciting. I mean, these guys, you know, to see the ark and to know that it's right there as they're about to go into battle, it thrills them. And I've read before about the phenomenon in, uh, they say, Seattle, CenturyLink Field where the Seahawks play is the loudest NFL stadium, although we Kansas City Chiefs fans realize it's not the best stadium. Okay. But they say it's the loudest. I don't know. But they say you can actually measure the crowd with the Richter scale, with what they use to measure earthquakes, because when the crowd gets excited in Seattle, it makes the ground shake. Well, we're told in the text here in verse 5 that as they shouted, these soldiers, the ground began to shake. The Philistines are not that far away. I assume they went back to Aphek. And they hear this shout from their enemies up on the hillside, and they are worried. Despite the fact that they have just defeated these guys in a battle, they're worried uh, because for some reason their enemies, a couple of miles away, are very, very excited about something. Then, when the Philistines hear that it is the Ark of the Covenant of God that has come into their camp, they're even more concerned. Because for them, they're a pagan people. I mean, they worship 
carved objects, golden objects. And so they reason that Israel's God has physically been brought into the camp. That they're not only going to be facing the Israelites, but the Israelites and their God. Verses 7 to 8. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Now, symbols, symbols are important. Symbols have meaning and importance to us. They point to spiritual realities. Uh, a silver cross necklace reminds someone of, of what Jesus did for them. The elements of the Lord's Supper, the waters of baptism, these are all very dear symbols to us. Symbols are important, but no thing is God. No thing is God. No graven image, no object is worthy of our worship. And the Israelites, they've just hauled the ark of God into their camp. They did not, however, somehow unlock God's favor. Okay, this is not a spiritual lucky rabbit's foot that's going to help them in the next battle, but they think it is. Now, Philistines are worried, but they summon up their courage and once again line themselves up to go into battle against the Israelites. And the first battle, sadly, it turns out, was just the appetizer. Now the Philistines will fully feast on the Israelites. Mass casualties inflicted, and that wasn't all. They captured the ark. How sad is that? They captured the Ark of the Covenant. Verses 10 and 11, So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and they scattered. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the Ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Terrible defeat for the tribes. Ark was captured by pagan people. The sons, high priests, lay dead. And that last part, by the way, is, is a fulfillment of prophetic judgment that we saw back in chapter 2. It's now coming to pass. As we talked about this morning, when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. A messenger flee, flees from the battle lines back to the de facto capital of Shiloh, heading back to this provisional capital to carry news of the defeat back to the nation's leaders. Eli seems to have already been preoccupied. I think the high priest knew, under my watch, I really wasn't supposed to, supposed to let the ark like leave here, all right? I wasn't supposed to allow that to happen, but I did. So he's a little worried already about what might happen to the ark that he allowed to go very close to enemy lines. And so this 98-year-old high priest gets the battlefield report. Here's how many casualties Israel suffered. Here's that the ark is now in Philistia. And here's that his two sons, who he's been protecting and defending, they're dead. And... We're told in the text that Eli is very overweight, and this, 
I, I suppose, becomes important because as, as he gets the news, he literally falls over in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. More fulfillment of the prophecy from chapter 2. Eli's daughter-in-law, she has introduced a new character in the story. She is the wife of Phinehas. She is in the final trimester of a pregnancy. She gets the news of everything that's just happened. She goes into labor, right? It is a difficult labor, a very difficult labor. And she could tell at the very end that her labor would claim her life But she was able, right before this child was born or as the child was born, she is able to do one last thing, and that is name her newborn son. And she gives him a remarkable name, the name Ichabod. Ichabod literally means no glory. Verses 21 to 22. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, this could be a Greek tragedy Everyone dies, right? I mean, nation is defeated. Uh, The ark is in the hands of the Philistines. And the biblical narrative up to this point has really kept our attention focused on this object, on the ark of God. And now it is in Philistia. It is transported from Ebenezer, from the Israelite camp, down to Ashdod. I've actually been to Ashdod before. And it is placed in the temple of their god, Dagon, their chief god, Dagon. Uh, Very common in the ancient world. So you you win in battle, you cart off the enemies, you know, whatever idols or objects you can gather, and you put them on display in the temple of your god. Um, Samson was kind of a living object put on display by, uh, enemy, by the enemies of Israel earlier in, in a pagan temple as well, uh, in a temp- the temple of Dagon. So this isn't the first time they've had Hebrew objects in their temple. Um, and the next morning, so, so imagine Ark of God there, a uh, statue of the god Dagon, who is a sort of human-looking statue. You can Google uh, what that looks like. Um, and so he's placed in there in this room where Dagon is worshipped, and the pagan priests wake up the next morning to carry out their duties in their temple, and they are surprised to find um, that Dagon has fallen over. He's on the ground. He's, Dagon is lying on his face, uh, prostrate before the, the ark of God. Prostrate. They pick him back up. Got to pick your God up there, right? Not if your God is actually a God, but anyway, that's another one. Uh, Then the second morning, there he is again. Dagon has fallen over again, face planted before the ark. And this time, his arms have broken off and his head has, has broken off and maybe rolled a little bit. These are not good omens if you are a superstitious people. 
Probably not even if you're not a superstar. That's not a good omen when your God is falling over. At the same time, people around Ashdod begin to contract these tumors, these ugly uh, skin tumors. The leaders of Ashdod, they gather to discuss what what do we need to do to protect our citizens, protect our city. Uh, What's the right move here? It looks like, and they're they're able to kind of connect the dots here, it looks like Israel's God is punishing us. Um, So they decide to kick the can down the road. We're just going to, we're going to ship the ark off to the city of Gath, another Philistine city. This one uh, we recognize possibly as the hometown of a guy named Goliath, who's going to show up a little bit later. Um, So they they ship the ark. You You guys can have the ark for a while. We'll put it on tour around Philistia. Same thing happens. People start getting sick. This outbreak of tumors happens again. And so the leaders of Gath, they decide to ship the ark onto Ekron, to the next city. We don't, I mean, people, they're just playing hot potato with this ark at this point. Um, They're like, uh, the people of Ekron, as they see the ark, I mean, they're like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, not here. Chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have, brought, uh, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of, God, of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic Throughout the whole city, the hand of God was very heavy there. Uh, The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. What are we going to do with this ark that we captured? I mean, certainly they're wishing they had not captured the ark at this point. And it's really dark comedy. I mean... It's like, here's, you know, it opens up in this magnificent victory over Israel and the spoils of war and this holy relic from Israel. We're going to put it on, on display in the temple of Dagon. We're going to show it off. Uh, they've gotten their hands on this precious object and they, they can't wait to just use it to prop themselves up in their religion. And then all of a sudden they start tossing it around. They're afraid of it. Uh, they don't know what to do with it. All they know is it's not coming to my town. You guys, keep it over there. We don't want any part of that. And so finally, the leaders of, of Philistia all uh, gathered and discussed what to do with it, and they decided to strap the ark onto a sturdy wooden cart right, and hitch a couple of milk cows to the ark and just send it off. Just send it off. They believe if the cows start heading back to Israelite territory, then that is a sign that the plagues will end. And in fact, for sure, it has been the God of Israel that's been doing the damage. Right? If the team of cows just starts wandering around, well, they're kind of in trouble, 
right? If it doesn't head back to Israel, they're kind of in trouble. Uh, They'll have to gather again and figure out what to do. They also think that it's wise, and this is where it gets a little, I don't know, it's a little weird, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, They're going to send a guilt offering, kind of a sorry we stole your God type offering with this. And so they they have, (laughs) it's just weird, they have some custom-made golden tumors produced to send on the cart with the ark. I, don't, I mean, you can find a lot of things on Amazon. I don't think you can, I mean, I don't know that you can find golden tumors on Amazon. And they throw in some golden rats as well. So they put those in a little box and send it back as a, I'm sorry, we're, we shouldn't have stolen your God. And so they send it back on its way. I mean, by the way, why the, why the rats? Uh, bu- bubonic plague, you know, a lot of times plagues traveled by rats, so maybe they're just covering all their bases here, right? Um, so they send the cart on its way. The cows turned toward Beth Shemesh, an Israelite town. And these milk, cars, uh, milk cows take the ark straight there. The people... In Philistia are rejoicing, and the people in Beth Shemesh are rejoicing as well that the ark has come home. And so they rejoice, and they worship, and they offer sacrifices to God. And the ark will spend a little bit of time there in Beth Shemesh. But some of the men of the town, 70 to be exact, could not resist the temptation to, to peek inside the Ark of the Covenant. Could it be that the tablets given to Moses on Mount Sinai are still in there? Could it be that Aaron's staff that budded, that that remnants of that are still in there? Could that jar with manna still be in there? They're dying to know. And so they looked inside. And all 70 of these men of the town of Beth Shemesh died. And the town falls into a state of mourning. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 6. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall... He go up away from us. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I'm really not sure how excited Abinadab was to be told, you're hosting the ark, but he did, and things did stabilize two decades pass. Now, there is a lot happening, just boom, 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 in this series of short stories in the book of 1 Samuel. And to be honest, most of it's not good. 
uh, military defeats for Israel against their emerging arch-rival Philistia, loss of life, mourning in pretty much, I mean, just all over the place in Philistia and in Israel. Um, and then, you know, the Philistines are suffering as well, and, and these tumors are popping up. And, and then rapid fire, the priests of Israel, you know, we've got them dying in battle. We've got Eli, uh, their father, uh, dying in this freak accident that is really the fulfillment of prophecy. A woman j- dying in childbirth, um, but just before she has time to pass away, she names her child No Glory. Um, and ir- ironically... As you move through these stories, what stands kind of in the middle of every beat, of every bit of the story, is precisely that. It is the glory of God. The glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. You can easily lose that. You can easily get caught up in all of the the human actors and the sickness and the drama and the pagan gods and leaders and their decisions and whether they were wise or not, both Philistine and Israelite, plagues and death in all of these cities. But over and over again, God's glory keeps showing up in fierce and terrible ways. God's glory keeps showing up. God is not to be trifled with. He will not be used, and no object, no matter how sacred, how precious, can serve as a substitute for God. And so as the men in Beth Shemesh asked after the tragedy struck the men who dared to look into the Ark of the Covenant, and this is the million-dollar question tonight, this is 1 Samuel 6.20, they ask, who can stand? In the presence of the Lord, this holy God. And we get a lot of answers as we walk through the text. Um, The Israelite army, the ones who hauled the ark into battle, they could not stand. Thousands and thousands fell. The false god Dagon could not stand, he falls. He falls. The corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas, fall on the battlefield. Their father Eli fell over in his chair. The 70 who died in Beth Shemesh, they could not stand before this holy God. Thus the question they ask. And so chapters 4 through 6 do a lot more than just narrate some history about some battles between these two regional powers Um, They also narrate a series of victories for the holiness of God. The holiness of God, the glory of God are undefeated throughout this series of stories. The holiness of God, moving forward, is the thing at the center of the story. No army no leader, no false god, no holy object. Nothing in the world matters more than the holiness of God. And so these stories in 1 Samuel 4 through 6, they, they may not have the happy endings 
that we like in our stories, in our dramas, but they are important stories because these stories keep asking us, who can stand in the presence of this holy God? A.W. Tozer, who I suppose most of us have read some of his stuff, deep thinker, spiritual thinker, he wrote about this. He wrote about our mission to pass down generation after generation kind of this question about the holiness of God. He says this. He says, The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all her prayers and labor, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. Well, back to that quote from Orson Welles, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop the story. The good news, no surprise, our story doesn't stop in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Our story doesn't end here. Ultimately, the consummation of the story for Israel is with the Messiah. It's with Jesus. In the New Testament, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the first. He is the last. He holds the keys of death in his hands. And for us believers, our story doesn't culminate in our sin. It doesn't culminate in the last breath you will breathe in this life. Your story culminates with the omega. Jesus has the last word. That's where our story stops. And that phrase... In Christ, ein Christu in Greek. In Christ is a phrase that you will see over 90 times in the New Testament. That we are in Christ. We are in Christ. God is still God. Old Testament, New Testament, 2018, Dallas, Texas. God is still God. His holiness, His perfection, His majesty, His glory, His power, they are undiminished in the New Testament. This is not a different God in the pages of the Gospels. It is just that we now can stand before this holy God because we have been clothed with the righteousness of of Christ. Romans chapter 11 verse 20 says, we stand by faith. Let's pray together 
we'll worship here in just a moment. Lord God, how beautiful and terrible is your holiness. How unworthy are we to stand in your presence. We praise and worship you. We acknowledge the gulf the distance, the chasm between us and you, between your righteousness and our shame. You are a holy God. You are a righteous God. And we, th- we thank you tonight that our story does not end with your holiness and our sinful state. But you, you sent a redeemer. You sent yourself, you sent Jesus, your son, to live the life that we could not live and to die on our behalf and to conquer death. By his stripes, we are healed. We have been made whole by your son, Jesus. We celebrate, we gather, we praise because we are able to come before the throne of grace with confidence. We are able to stand in your presence, as Romans 11 says, by faith. Our trust is not in ourselves. Our trust is in Christ Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us that confidence, that hope, that joy of knowing that it's not up to us in our performance, that it's up to you. And Father God, may we not treat this gift lightly. May we not come before you casually, but may we pass from generation to generation a notion of the magnitude of the gift that we received and continually point to your holiness and your righteousness in our speech and in our actions. We praise and worship you. We thank you for sending Jesus to save us, to save us from your just wrath, to save us from your holiness. Thank you for making us right through Jesus. We pray this in his name tonight. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.